The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, so continuing today on the second of five talks on the first noble truth, the noble truth of suffering. And the task that uh, is mentioned by the Buddha is the, the task is to, of the first noble truth is to understand it, to fully understand it. And, uh, and that's a different relationship than many people have with suffering. The idea that we should stop and really get to know it better, to study it, investigate it, really understand it. Uh, is, um, you know, is maybe counterintuitive. We want to get rid of it. We want to stop it. We want to turn it off. We want to escape. We want to attack it. We want to, you know, do something. Um, and of course, we, the purpose of Buddhism is to not suffer. And so, of course, yes, it's okay to have a wish for the end of suffering and not to suffer. But one of the wise ways of doing that is to, from our, maybe from our ledge of peace, of some kind of ease and equanimity, to be able to turn towards the suffering, to be with the suffering in a way that helps us to understand it in a deep way. So the wording of the first noble truth in its simplest form is, uh, this is suffering, but the full kind of sentence it often comes with is, one understands this is, or one knows this is suffering. And the word is the more, un, more know here than understand, because understanding can suggest something more complicated. One understands where it comes from and all the elements of it and the consequences of it and you know the whole ecology of suffering. Whereas to know uh, implies something very special particular, just to recognize, oh, this is suffering. And that's kind of a clue to the Buddhist approach to this thing called suffering. And that is that uh, we're learning, we're, we're learning how to be present for it, to see it in a way that is equanimous, or see it in a way that in the being present for suffering, we're not adding more suffering to it. We're not reacting to it, attacking it, feeling, attacking ourselves, being angry, collapsing into despair. The ability to sit upright, metaphorically at least, to sit, sit somehow in a very, without collapsing, without pulling away, to just kind of see suffering right in the eyes. Suffering, I see you. This is suffering. Th- that's a difficult task. But that is the task of what Buddhist practice is slowly, as we build our practice, build our capacity, um, uh, build the ability to be grounded and centered in ourselves, rooted. We find our ledge, we find our nest, um, we find our sea legs, from the story yesterday, that we can, um, we begin to be able to find a place to breathe, quietly to breathe and look and be relaxed in a certain way and really honestly 
look at our suffering, what's going on. And for some people, hearing that this is the task of Buddhism, find a huge relief in that because they grew up in their society, their families, was all about avoiding suffering, pretending it's not there and denying it or, or somehow interpreting it in good ways and ways that kind of prettied it and made it different than what it was. And to actually get the message that, yes, this is suffering. And yes, let's talk about it. Let's be with it. Let's look at it. But not so we suffer better. That's not the point of Buddhism. Understand, be with your sufferings. You suffer better. The idea is so that we suffer, um, uh, well, (laughs) maybe suffer better in the sense that uh, we suffer without all the extra. We don't suffer more, but we suffer without all the extra uh, ways of reactivity that we have. So to understand suffering is is the task. And so maybe it's be interesting to uh, say that the words for suffering is dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A. And, um, and this word is translated into English in a variety of different ways. And it's kind of nice to have the different translations because each translation points to a different angle, a different aspect, different perspective on this thing that we call suffering. And we might be able to take dukkha and also the English translation suffering as kind of a broad umbrella term, a term that encompasses within it many kind of um, uh, component parts or different aspects of this particular human experience of suffering. Some of it very mild, some of it very big, but there's all these different aspects of it and the different translations give us different perspectives on it. And this, and you, someone might, some of you might feel, well, that's nice, but isn't there just really just one, un, one meaning for what the Four Noble Truths are? And uh, some teachers in some books you read will give you one explanation for what the Four Noble Truths are. But in fact, down through the centuries, there have been many explanations for the, what they are. Well, then let's go back to the Buddha and get his one explanation if you go back to the suttas, his teachings, uh, he didn't have just one explanation. Um, in my count, he had five different ones, some very similar, but some quite different from each other. And the ones that are usually uh, taught as the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha um, are just, are just one of those five. And some of them are never really referred to uh, in teachings. Um, and so... There are many different perspectives on this, and you'll see as we go through these uh, days and weeks on the Four Noble Truths that I'll offer different perspectives. For now, I wanted to give you some of the common English translations. First, it's important to understand that the word dukkha is an adjective, not a noun. And as an adjective, its literal meaning is painful. A pain, painful. And, uh, and then it by, by usage, it comes to have other meanings, other associations. But the co- and maybe the core meaning is pain or painfulness. And that pain um, is then almost like a metaphor for all the forms of suffering human beings can have. But it points to that whatever dukkha is in our psychological, emotional, experiential, physical world, 
it's a big ouch. It's something that we maybe contract around or something that hurts us. And so we get a very different uh, understanding of what uh, you know the Buddha's teachings if we translate dukkha as painful. So for example, there's a very common teaching that things like birth, old age, sickness, and death are dukkha. And sometimes people translate it as birth is suffering, sickness is, uh, is suffering, old age is suffering, death is suffering. And, that, and the word suffering is a noun. So it's one noun is the other noun. There's an equivalence which leads to all kinds of philosophical challenges. Um, the, um, uh, in, uh, if we t- translate it as painful, birth is painful, old age is painful, sickness is painful, death is painful. Now we're talking about something which many people can identify with, that you know, pain is other things, bes- birth is other things besides painful, but it is painful. Um, old age is other things besides just painful, but it is also painful. Sickness is also painful, and death, dying, uh, it can also be quite painful, one way or the other. And um, and for the Buddha to say this, I'm very touched in a very deep way. I'm kind of like very kind of a little bit in awe, a little bit. Uh, my appreciation of this ancient teachings goes up much more when I consider that back in the time of the Buddha, they had no anesthetics. There was no aspirins, no Novocaine, no you know anesthesia. And there was no palliative care to let us kind of die kind of pain, painlessly in the way that now there's, we have a lot of wonderful medicines that can help uh, us be much more comfortable um, while we're dying, if dying is difficult. And, um, and so the idea of pain was something that very acute in the ancient world. And people had to learn to live with it and be with it. And so when they say that birth is painful, they mean it. <laughs> um, old age is painful. Uh, sickness is painful. Death is painful. Grief, mourning, distress, anguish are painful. Sometimes a translation into English uh, is, is the word stress. And um, so that, uh, uh, you know, birth is stressful, old age is stressful, sickness is stressful, death is stressful, mourning, grief, pain, distress, anguish are stressful. Um, this is a, a raw, kind of a raw experiential association for the word dukkha. And it has the advantage that it's more physical um, without any evaluation of um, you know, whether it's right or wrong, good or bad, or something appropriate or not appropriate, it's just stressful. One of the people who translated this way uh, told me once that uh, one of the most stressful things in a person's life, apparently, is um, uh, marriage, <laughs> getting married, marriage ceremonies. Some people are very, you know, it's also hopefully a very happy, one of the happiest days of a person's life. But apparently there can also be a lot of stress associated with it. And so even wonderful things can have stress and people can be exhausted at the end of it. And, um, 
And so the idea that stress can follow us around in all kinds of ways, even things that we look forward to and love to do and are great, there can be stress involved. And so uh, to understand the, ex- the, the, um, the wide extent in which stress is part of our life uh, goes beyond what many people think of as being suffering. And in fact, it also applies to very deep meditation practice. Uh, as practice of con- meditation goes deeper and deeper and more concentrated, we experience some of the most uh, uh, happy, blissful kind of experience that are possible as a human being. Um, and paradoxically, the more concentrated and still and wonderful the meditation is, the heightened sensitivity there is, there is to uh, stress. In fact, some teachers will say, at the depth of them, the quietest, most peaceful, and nicest kinds of meditation you can ever imagine. Um, they'll say, okay, now look for where the stress is. Look where there's little tension, a little bit of uh, you know, pressure that feels a teeny, teeny bit. You know, it's, the degree of stress is like ridiculously light and in ordinary daily life one would never associate this subtlety of stress. But that's kind of what's left. It's, it's the last remnants of stress that in the mind which is otherwise very peaceful. And that's a very useful instructions to see that also as dukkha, so that even in those states, we continue the process of letting go. Um, when we translate it uh, dukkha as suffering, um, I don't know how it is for you, anybody, other people, but for me, uh, that has a very strong emotional association. Suffering has, feels most like an emotional, heavy uh, word. I'm suffering, and it just feels, uh, really, you know, just feels holistically, you know, emotional and full and existential. And it seems like very, it has this kind of feeling of totality to it in my mind, in my heart. Suffering, I'm suffering. And it just feels like, you know, this is almost like the totality of who I am. Whereas stress, you know, we can have stress and, you know, my, uh, sometimes I feel like I, my eyes are stressed if I'm spending too much on the computer. And, but I, the rest of me is quite happy. But suffering has a totality, emotional totality to it. Uh, and it uh, sometimes is a little difficult people to get their, their mind around the word suffering because it's so big. Uh, another uh, uh, translation, the last one I'll mention, th- um, that can be quite popular, uh, is more in, in my mind, it has a more intellectual or philosophical m- uh, association, uh, or to say it more precisely, it's evaluative in nature. It has to do with making a little bit more evaluation, uh, constructing an understanding, philosophical or intellectual understanding, that's a little bit removed from direct experience. Whereas pain can be really about direct experience. Stress can be really about direct experience. And suffering, exactly how much is direct experience or how much is evaluative or conceptual, is, you know, that's part of the discovery process of mindfulness. So this one that's more intellectual uh, um, also has a more universal quality to it. And that is translating dukkha as unsatisfactory. That, um, and the recognition that, and then, and then the, how it's evaluative or intellectual is that you have to then explain in what way is it unsatisfactory. Pain, you don't have to explain in what way it's pain. You know it's painful. Stress may be the same way. 
Suffering, maybe it's a little more complicated. But unsatisfactory clearly is more complicated because it requires some explanation, some understanding that's more than just feeling, sensing that something's unsatisfactory. It begs the question, unsatisfactory in what way? And the usual explanation of people who choose this is something like, if we're searching for lasting, reliable happiness and peace, uh, we won't find it in the particular experiences, objects, things of the world, including the objects and experiences we can have within ourselves. That nothing that can be directly experienced as a, in, as a, as a particular concept, idea, experience, um, uh, can provide lasting happiness because it's impermanent because it's inconstant, because it comes and goes, appears and disappears. And any attempt to hold on to something, this is it, this is what, uh, how you're going to be happy, this will make me happy. I remember once, very clearly, when I, I, when I was about 20 years old, I had a very nice summer. And uh, I just was kind of ecstatic by the end of the summer, very, very happy. And uh, I remember having the thought, I'll never be unhappy again. And uh, then just a month later, two months later, I was more depressed than I'd ever been in my life. Uh, so, so much for that idea that I would always be, be this way. Um, the, um, so, the, uh, um, so unsatisfactory. And in deep meditation and, and also in ordinary life, people come to the wisdom to understand that what they were holding on to or expecting to do it for themselves, to really make things great for them, happy for them, satisfying for them, uh, that, um, that uh, uh, it, it's fleeting, it's not lasting, it doesn't live up to the full promise. And so uh, many people are disappointed. What made them happy at one point in life is no longer makes them happy later in life or... And then because it's fleeting, people will kind of, who are always looking for something outside or something, some experience which will do it, will then just go on, on the search for another experience, another thing, another thing. And, uh, and the Dharma is not about finding something, some experience, some idea that uh, is it that brings happiness. But rather it's more like about discovering not something, but some absence of a thing, to discover the freedom and the peace and the happiness that comes from the absence of clinging, the absence of thirsting and being compulsive and grabbing and holding on and attachment, which includes, you know, very strong resistance to things. That absence of resistance, that absence of clinging, of grasping, of attachment, that is reliable if we can let go fully. So the purpose of really getting to know suffering, really see it clearly and to understand it, is part of this project to come to the absence of suffering, to let go of clinging in a very deep way. And, um, and so, um, um, that's what we'll look at over these days and weeks that we look at the Four Noble Truths more deeply. So I hope this is nice and uh, 
this kind of explanation and it lays the groundwork for what's going to come. So thank you for being part of this and I look forward to our time tomorrow.